The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 3, 1 through 5. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sacred City. This is Rob Spikestra. I am the, uh, one of the pastors here at, uh, at Sacred City, and it is my privilege this morning to give uh, Pastor Justin a little bit of a break. Uh, one of the things he said to me is he said, uh, he's not sure what's more difficult to do is to preach to no one in a room or to actually then the next day watch himself preaching. And so I can appreciate that. So hopefully this will give him an opportunity to rest and relax a little bit and enjoy a time of uh, worship with his family uh, without having to watch himself. So thank you for joining us this morning, um, or perhaps this afternoon or in the evening, whenever it is that you're watching uh, this uh, video. Uh, but I, I pray that, uh, uh, first of all, you have God's Word with you in front of you, because we'll be uh, turning to some passages uh, uh, but also, uh, if you could even now join with me in a word of prayer, just asking for God's blessing uh, on our time in his word. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be in your word. Uh, it's always a, a, a remarkable reality that God wrote a book, and that book has his intent to tell a story and a story of of what you want to do in and through our lives. And so, Father, we're thankful for that. Thankful, Father, for your Holy Spirit who you have given to uh, illuminate uh, what has been written to our hearts. And so our prayer, Father, right now is that you would uh, cause your word to become alive to our hearts, that you might be speaking to us and that uh, you might be making us more and more into the image of your Son. So, Father, thank you for this time. Pray for your blessing upon a blessing upon your word. Uh, we, uh, we thank you in advance for what you'll be doing in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name who made this possible. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this pandemic uh, has possibly caused you to stop and take stock of the important things of your life, like your closets. There's a good chance that the majority of those watching this sermon have, have at least one closet uh, jam-packed with all kinds of stuff, you know, clothes or shoes or books, uh, games, uh, but so disorganized, you don't know exactly what is all in there nor where to find what you want. So you shut the door and tell yourselves that we'll sort that out some other day. Well, that closet is how author Sandra Richter compares the Bible and particularly the Old Testament in her book, uh, The Epic of Eden. Uh, like that closet, you might pluck an item out of the Old Testament, a proverb here or a psalm uh, there, a story of a large fish or perhaps a parting of a sea. But for the most part, you don't know what is, is all in there. And you certainly have no idea how it's organized. Well, Richter goes on to write, we forget that this book, and she, of course, is talking about the Bible, we, we forget that this book is cast upon the waters of history with one very specific, completely essential and desperately needed objective, to tell the epic tale of God's ongoing quest to ransom his creation. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word epic, uh, my heart beats a little bit faster. But then to consider that God uh, is on a, a quest, an epic quest, uh, I'm curious. So what is this epic quest? What, what is the epic tale all about? Well, the Bible is the grand story of God's quest to restore our humanity, to make us human again. 
Or or using the terminology that Pastor Justin uh, used last week, the true self. If we return for a moment back to the first three chapters of Genesis, God created us fully human with the ability to be in communion with him. And part of being fully human was the freedom to choose. And oh, how we chose poorly. Sin made a claim on our lives. Communion was broken. We were cast out. And it didn't take long before we acted inhumanely. Cain killing his brother Abel. Everything between Genesis and Revelation reveals how far God was willing to go to restore people back to him, to make them fully human again, to bring people back into communion with him. He was willing to go this far. Peter, one of his disciples, wrote it distinctly this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He said, for Christ, that's God's son, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God willingly gave his son in his quest to bring us back into communion with him. So that I am willing as I'm willing to go as far as I, as I think of this unifying theme of a story, I'm willing to say that from the unfolding, from the beginning to the end, it's about the why and how of communion with God. But how? How is communion with God possible for you and me? Well, communion with God is possible by stepping through the doorway of union with Christ. And that's really what verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3 is all about, or at least partially. Uh, Let me read for you again verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Remarkably, Paul, who wrote uh, the majority of the New Testament, never once uses the word Christian to identify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, That is, those who are of the true church. Rather, his most common descriptor for those who follow Christ is that they are in Christ. And this is the essence of the gospel. The good news. You are in Christ. Or, as I just read for you in Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So that what was supposed to hit you, even, even the judgment of God against your sins, it hit Jesus instead. Jesus Christ absorbed all of God's wrath that should have been yours. So when Jesus Christ was raised, you were raised in him. And as Pastor Justin showed us last week, your true self, everything that you long for to be true about yourself is hidden in him. And what you are really longing for in being fully human again is this. Jesus Christ was the truest human. He, he was pe- perfectly dependent on his Father, perfectly obedient, uh, perfectly humble, strong, and kind. And you are in him. And the reason you long to be your true self is that it means you will be fully human again, capable to enjoy communion with God. And one day that true self will be fully received when Jesus Christ returns in Christ is one aspect of union with Christ, and it is through this union with Christ that you're able even now to have communion with God. So this was the good news that Paul was sharing uh, with the Colossian believers there in verses 1 through 4. So now notice... Notice the turn of his words in verse 5. In light of the good news, the good news that you are now hidden in Christ and able to have communion with God, he writes, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If the real you is hidden in Christ, 
he's saying, then do this. Put to death now everything that is contrary to the real you, everything contrary to being fully human. That is, put to death everything that hinders your communion with God. Believers in Jesus Christ are to make it their daily work to put to death indwelling sin. There are three questions I want to answer this morning. First, why should putting to death indwelling sin be a daily priority of a believer? And then what does it not mean and mean to put to death indwelling sin? And then thirdly, I'd like to share with you, how do we put to death indwelling sin? So let's look at that first question. Beside the fact that this is a command and ought to be obeyed uh, for that reason, why should putting to death indwelling sin be a daily priority for a believer? Well, let me start with the obvious, sobering reality. Indwelling sin, frankly, dwells in us. My wife and I have had the opportunity to uh, live in Nebraska and Colorado, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Montana, and now Iowa, and you've probably heard me say this before. The biggest problem everywhere I go is that I'm there. (laughs) If you think that a new location or, or a new job or a new relationship is going to solve your problems, particularly your indwelling sin problem, you're dead wrong. Or put it another way, if you move from relationship to relationship to relationship or job to job to job or church to church to church, because everywhere you go, you find losers, you might want to look at the common denominator in the mirror. Loser. The sober reality is that sin dwells in us. But let's allow Paul to clarify what I mean by sin dwelling in us. Look at what he says there in, uh, there in verse uh, 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Uh, the Greek literally reads, Therefore, put to death your members that are earthly. Sin dwells in the members of our body. And what he's referring to is he's referring to the the broken state of which we are born into this world. It is our members which are are broken. Our members are our mind. And so we can't think rightly uh, about God fully. Uh, Our our will, uh, we don't don't desire the right things. Uh, It's our emotions. We don't feel the right affections for the right things. In our body, we do things with our body that God never intended, which all of this has been infected by sin and thus makes us sin-sick people. Paul writes of this, and so I'd have you turn in your Bibles to Romans 7. Uh, He writes of this quite a bit in Romans chapters 6 and 7. We're going to be there for just a minute, so turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to look at verse 14. So Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 14. And look at the second part of, of that verse 14. He he writes, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, interestingly, there's hope in this. There's hope in those words in the preposition of, of the flesh. He says, I'm of the flesh and not in the flesh. And the significance of that is found earlier in Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 5. Look what it says there at verse 5. For while we were living, look there, in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So what is he saying here? Well, Paul is saying that before he came to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he was in the flesh. And being in the flesh, sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law says, don't. I think I will. 
If you follow your sinful passions far and long enough, they will eventually kill you both physically and spiritually. So there, there is an immeasurable distance between being in the flesh and of the flesh. And he explains that distance there in verse 6 now of of Romans 7. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now the question is, when did that happen? When did Paul die? Union in Christ. See, look over at chapter 6, just uh, uh, over there on the second other side of the page here. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so, nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's the good news. The good news of union with Christ is that we are in him and that Paul says we have died we died with Christ. We are no longer under, uh, under slavery to this sin. So that we now go back to chapter 7, verse 6, and finish Paul's uh, statement there in, in verse 6. He says, So that we serve not under the old written code, but where? In the new life of the, of the Spirit. Therefore, while our status is that of being in Christ, our members, our mind, our will, our emotions and bodies are still affected by by sin. They are in an earthbound condition. So the sobering reality is that everywhere you go, sin goes with your members. But not only is it there, But indwelling sin is still active. Sin does not only dwell in us, it's still acting. It's still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Again, in Romans chapter 7, uh, look at verses 21 and 23. Paul writes, Romans 7, 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Or listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And we begin to feel the frustration that Paul, we understand the frustration that Paul is going through, going to, into. Look at chapter 7 of Romans again, and look at verse 15. For he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. According to James chapter 1, verse 14, our own sinful desires are enticing us towards sin. Indwelling sin is never less quiet when it seems to be most quiet. Tamara and I were walking along the Mississippi last week. It was as calm as I've ever seen it. There was no wind, and so it, it was like glass on the surface. But its force was just as strong as on the days when it's turbulent, and so is indwelling sin. It's always acting. Thirdly, indwelling sin is no match for mere mortals. Indwelling sin is no match for mere mortals. So imagine the the most powerful swimmer uh, jumping into the Mississippi on that day, and they jumped on the upriver side of the the roller dam. Uh, They may have efficient stroke and, and strength to resist for a time, but the river just keeps flowing. 
So eventually the river will overcome the swimmer and he will become captive to the current and will be swept away into the undercurrent of the roller dam to, to his destruction. So the most powerful swimmers do not have the ability to resist the river. Mere mortals are no match. Uh, listen again to Paul's words, own words in Romans chapter 7. Uh, at the end of verse 18, he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then a few verses later in verse 23, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's, it, Paul is, is crying out like a, a, a man who feels defeated, defeated when he begins to look at himself and his own strength. He, he, he's defeated knowing that he does not have what it takes within himself. Which is why, as we come back to our passage now in Colossians chapter 3, which is why I think Paul lists the particular sins he does there in verse 5. Uh, those particular sins are not, are not exhaustive lists of sins that we are to put to death. And a matter of fact, in, in verse 8 of Colossians 3, we have another list. And it seems to be the relationship between these two lists is that the first list sins within, sins which reside inside the individual. And then the second list there in verse 8 are more like sins in relation to one's neighbor. So look at this first list and notice that they are sexual in nature. The first word is sexual immorality, porneion, where we get our English word pornography. It can be used for any kind of sexual deed outside of God's intended purpose uh, for sex. Impurity is a second word. It's a reference to any evil thought or intent of the heart that is contrary to God's holiness. It's the impure hearts behind uh, these actions. And then the next two words, passion and evil desire, when, when found together, expresses the inordinate craving for sexual satisfaction. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he is putting forth one of the strongest drives found within humanity that most of us can relate to as the strongest current we are swimming against even today. In our members, what God created, this sexual drive, of which in the garden before the fall, he spoke over it as very good. Now it is broken, and in our brokenness, no mere mortal can Overcome. See, the, the force of indwelling sin is no match. The pandemic has probably revealed a few more things to you than messy closets. It, it probably has revealed just how powerful of a current your go-to indwelling sin has. And it has one end in mind. Number four, your destruction. Your destruction. And dwelling sin has one end. It's your destruction. You, you may be saved from the penalty of sin, but that doesn't mean indwelling sin doesn't want to destroy your life. And, and not surprising, considering the thief Satan, who stole our humanity in the garden. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Indwelling sin will not be quiet until it has stolen your peace, killed your joy, and destroyed you and your relationships. Indwelling sin aims always at the utmost so that every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it might have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. So every angry thought would be murder if it could. It's modest, as it were, in the beginning, but once having a foot in the heart, it constantly makes ground and presses forward with no bounds until it destroys 
Which is why the Hebrew writer writes to his brothers and sisters in Christ these words, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. He says, take care, brothers, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, but exhort one another every day, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Indwelling sin is modest in its deceitfulness that we might eventually fall away from communion with the living God. So, so why, why, why should you put to death indwelling sin? Why should it be a daily occupation of a believer? Indwelling sin is as near as everywhere you go, and it's active. It's powerful. It's lethal. Believers in Jesus Christ must make it their daily work to put to death indwelling sin. Which leads me to our second question. What does it not mean and mean to put to death indwelling sin? So what does it not mean? Well, it does not mean, number one, self-improvement. That is turning over a new, le- new leaf. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps your, uh, your um, activity over the pandemic, uh, perhaps the, that which is you're most frustrated with is binge watching. Uh, you've been binge watching uh, uh, shows and you're seeing yourself wasting time uh, uh, watching uh, uh, kind of numbless, uh, numbing kind of, uh, uh, of storylines. And so you, you don't like that, that outer uh, uh, work, the, the, that, those things that you're, you're actually doing. And so what do you do? You put on technological controls or, or perhaps you get some accountability. Um, you're, dealing with, you're dealing with simply your, your actions. See, it's remarkable that what men and women are able to achieve when it comes to employing self-discipline and self-control. See, you do not need to come to Christ to become a better person or a more successful person or a, even a more liked individual. But, but self-improvement does not get to the roots of sin. And so we see this root in the fifth sin of verse 5, covetousness. Or or your version may say greed. In the Greek, there's this little article, the, in front of covetousness. And what that article, why that article is significant is that it is saying that this noun this now covetousness is the hidden motivation behind all these previous soul-destroying sins. The, the two Greek words for covetousness is play on, more, and echo, to have. And so it means to have more. It is that insatiable desire to have more so that the heart behind these sinful drives for sexual immorality or let's go on to some other, uh, other sins uh, for uh, material possessions or fame or position or any other indwelling sin. What's behind this is a self-seeking, greedy heart. It is substituting self for Jesus Christ, which is Look there, verse 5, idolatry. Self-improvement, it's all about self. It's all about me. It's all about putting self, substituting self for Jesus Christ. And putting the sin to, to death is not the diverting of sin either. Again, think about the self-improving man or, or woman who out of self-discipline and self-control, overcome a nasty habit. Rightfully so, his family and friends are happy for his victory or her victory. They, they congratulate him or her, and, and he or she is self-congratulating. But now they have diverted that overt sinful habit into a much more cunning, covert sin of pride. So that he begins to look down with disgust on those who seem to not be able to get their lives put together. Putting to death a sin is not just simply diverting our sin to something else. And putting to death a sin is not the occasional 
conquest over sin. This is the individual where indwelling sin erupts kind of like a a volcano. Uh, Her her peace is disturbed, conscience troubled, dread dread of scandal raised, an an evident provocation of God. And so she's sad and she cries out to God for forgiveness and decides no more to that sin and goes on never getting at its idolatrous roots. See, this is what the psalmist is singing about in Psalm 78 regarding God's people wandering there in the wilderness. Uh, The words to the tune go like this, Psalm 78. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, speaking, when God killed them, then they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. The psalmist writes, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths and they lied lied to him with their tongues and their heart was not steadfast toward him. See, did you hear that? Their, Their heart wasn't changed. Their affections weren't changed. Uh, rather, uh, they, what they loved was they loved their comfort. So when God began to remove the comfort from their lives, uh, they then turned to God and repented and they, they cried out to God. But in the end, they were only flattering God because all they wanted from God uh, was what, what God would give them. They wanted the gifts, not the giver of the gifts. They didn't love him. Putting to death to sin is not just that occasional trying to get out of trouble by indwelling sin or trying to get back the comforts that God will give. No. Finally, and surprisingly, putting to death, putting to death sin is not the utter destruction of indwelling sin. It is true It is true that this is what we're aiming at, but this is not in this life to be fully accomplished. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul, deep into his uh, ministry and life, had not obtained perfection uh, being fully being, being fully human, being his best self. But Paul was pressing on to make it his own because Christ had made him his own. Paul's true life was hidden with Christ. Paul was pressing on in this life to make what was already his in heaven. And it is true, through the power of the Spirit and the grace of Christ and the love of the Father, wonderful success can Against sin can be attained so that we can ha- almost have constant triumph, and triumph over it. But in the end, Paul writes in that same chapter, chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In the end, this is best. Christ will complete us fully. We call that glorification. So if that's not what it means, what does it mean to put to death indwelling sin? Well, putting to death of indwelling sin is getting at the idolatrous root of the indwelling sin by believers in faith in the work of the triune God. Putting to death of indwelling sin is getting at the idolatrous root of indwelling sin by believers in faith, in the work of the triune God. So note first that it is, it is this, by believers. There will be no death of indwelling sin unless a person is a believer. That is, one who is in Christ. See, according to our passage, uh, those who are going to be putting to death what is earthly in them, it is those who are, verse 1, raised with Christ, whose life is hidden in Christ, verse 3, and verse 4, who will also appear with him in glory. An unbeliever man may do something like killing sin by putting it to death, but the work itself, uh, so as to be acceptable to God, he is not able to do. 
Putting to death and dwelling sin is not, just, is not the business of unbelievers. So if this is you, God is calling you to the conversion of your entire soul. He's calling you to fall upon him as your Lord and Savior. He's calling you to rest and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to acknowledge that you are that sinner who needs his soul to be completely dealt with. He's calling you into communion with him by coming into union with Jesus Christ. That's the business you have this morning. So putting to death and dwelling sin is first by believers, and secondly, it's in faith, in faith. See, uh, back in Colossians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 6, Paul writes, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. So how did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Well, by faith. So how do we walk in him? By faith. And then thirdly, it's faith in the work of the triune God. There is going to be a work that we're going to do but it's only a work that comes out as a result of the work of the Trinity. In a moment, we're going to see specifically how the Trinity joins forces with us by our faith in their work. So it's, it's right here where we get a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope over that besetting sin, that sin that God has perhaps made, made manifest during your isolation and your social distancing. The triune God is on your side so that believers in Jesus Christ are to make it their daily work to put to death indwelling sin. It's beginning to not seem so hopeless after all. So, how do we put to death indwelling sin? Well, load, look, look, look. First, load. First, load your conscience. L load your conscience with the guilt of sin. See, this is the place of the law of God to do its work and what is to bring conviction to our conscience. Now, now you may say already, I already know, I already know uh, I'm wrong. I already know what I need to get rid of in my life. I know the behavior they don't like anymore. Well, then you're the right person to bring God's law to bear now on your conscience. See, it was a Hebrew writer who reflected back on Esau and, and on Esau uh, receiving God's blessing. It was Esau who sold God's blessing to satisfy a momentary passion. He was hungry, really hungry. Who, when he had filled his belly and satisfied his earthly passion, he realized that he had given something great up for some soup. And yet the Hebrew writer writes about Esau these words. He said he found no place for repentance, even though he saw what he lost with tears. See, he bitterly regretted his choice and even shed tears over his foolishness, but he did not want to repent. He selfishly wanted God's blessings, but he did not want God. He wanted what God would give him, and those things that he loved, which was his idolatry. And so it's at this moment we of regret that we need to load our conscience with guilt of sin so that we're not like Esau, and so that we recognize that uh, the, the awfulness of, of our sin in such a way that it is broken, that communion that he has won for us. And so it is this moment we need to load our conscience with the guilt of sin in general. So don't let indwelling sin uh, shrink away to attack again. Have no mercy, give no quarter. 
load your conscience with the Hebrew writer's words in Hebrews chapter 10. So let me just read those for you and feel the, the, the weight of these words that need to be upon our conscience. Hebrews chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, there's nowhere else to go but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Load your conscience in general, but then load your conscience in particular. King David, who is our model, he prayed Psalm 51, three, verses 3 and 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Oh, David had hurt a lot of people in his sin. But in the end, he recognized the idolatrous nature of what was behind his actions, what was behind his behavior, and it was uh, idolatry. He loved himself more than he loved God. And so he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. If you will put to death in dwellings and you must tie up your conscience to the law, hold it fast from all of its shiftings and false justifications and exceptions until you own it for what it is and you own its guilt and you recognize its idolatrous nature that it has, you load it down with the law. And then look. Look to the stream. When Jesus met the woman at the well, she was virtually soulless. From failed relationship after failed relationship, she was rejected by her own. So that it, as he looked into her eyes, her empty eyes. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you know what was happening there with this woman. It's in the middle of the day. It's hot. There's no one else around. No one should even be there at this well at this point because it's so hot. And she's there and, and he's using this physical heat around him to really get at not just her physical thirst, but now her spiritual thirst. She's thirsty to be human again. She's thirsty for real communion with real fellowship. And so Jesus says, I know where you can go to get the water that will make you human again. Later, Jesus made these clarifying words. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, John writes, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Look to the Spirit. See, remember earlier I said communion with God is possible by stepping through the doorway of union with Christ. And verses 1 through 4 refers to the one aspect of our union with Christ, and that is that we are in Christ. But there's more to this union. Not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us through the Holy Spirit. So remember back in, in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, uh, we, we looked at this when we were, we were, in, that, um, we were in that place, that, 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 the theater. Remember those days? Remember when we used to be in the theater? 
Look at what verse 27 says. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. And now the, the Holy Spirit labors to make us human again, to make us the real us. And that is our hope for glory. He'll finish that work. Oh, yeah. Sin still dwells in our members. So that where you go in dwelling sin goes actively aiming for your destruction. But where you go, Christ goes. The one who went toe to toe with sin on the cross and won. Remember that resurrection taunt? 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus putting to death and dwelling sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. And of all the gifts of Christ, they are now communicated to us and given to us by this living stream of spiritual water, the Spirit of Christ. So what does this mean practically? Well, we dip our hands down into the stream of the Spirit of God and we drink deeply by the means of grace. So what are those means? We confess our sin privately to God in prayer. We pray for genuine repentance. We fill our minds with the promises of God's deliverance. We confess our sin to trusted believers in Christ. We sing and rejoice corporately in the cross, we eat the bread and drink the cup of communion. We profess our faith corporately. We, we confess our sins corporately. We daily pray for deliverance. We read God's word daily and seek truth about God and about ourselves. These are the means to which we dip deep into this stream of the Spirit of God in our fight over sin, we look to the stream and we look, we, we look to the Savior. See, the death of sin in you is why Christ died. This is the testimony of the New Testament over and over again. Listen to these words, Titus 2.14. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and, listen to this, to purify for himself a people. Or John chapter 1, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Or Hebrews 9, 14, where it says that Christ gave his blood and offered himself without blemish to God. Why? to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We aim for, we, we pursue after the death of indwelling sin in us by looking to Christ. He became fully human and died that we might be fully human, our true Savior. We look to the Savior's finished work we do what Justin told us to do last week. We look up and we receive what is already ours. Our true self. And finally, we look to the source. Growing up in Colorado in an active family who loved the outdoors, we would backpack in the Rocky Mountains and take trails where no Jeeps or ATVs were allowed. And typically we would set up our camp uh, on a lake near the Continental Divide, but still below Timberline. And it was usually our habit, at least one day, we would follow the stream that fed the lake to discover its source. It, it was always perplexing to me 
how a stream in the middle of July or even August near, uh, near the Continental Divide never ran out of water. Well, it, it didn't because inevitably it led up to a snowfield that never quite melted before the next fall's first snow. An unending source of refreshment. John Owens, the great Puritan theologian of the 17th century, observed something of his day that is still true in our day. Owens noted that among believers, while they could imagine God the Father as angry and willing to punish those who die in their sins, he said they they failed to conceive of God's, and this is his own words, peculiar love for them as believers. Owens writes, they are afraid to have good thoughts of God. Thoughts of God's goodness or his mercy or his love, his tenderness. Owen concludes, he says, this reaction is a result of soul deceit from Satan. Well, if you trace the stream or the Savior back to the source, this is whom you find. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Why did he do that? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And so committed to this outcome, Paul writes of the Father, he says, it's in love that God the Father predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. According to to the purpose of his will. Don't be afraid to have good thoughts of God. Behind the work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit is a father of unending love for his adopted children. And he's on a quest. The triune God is on a quest to restore your humanity. The better you, the real you, the you you want to be. So don't stop, believers. In Jesus Christ, make it your daily work to put to death indwelling sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the quest that you are on. And thank you, Father, that we are the objects of that quest. Father, thank you for giving us your spirit, who is that uh, living stream dwelling within us. Father, help us to drink deeply through all the means that you have given to us. We thank you, Father, for your son who died for us in order that we might be the best self, our best self. Thank you, Father, that one day it is so right and so good that when he returns, he will complete the work that he has begun in us. And Thank you, Father. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we can have good thoughts of you, that you are one who has adopted us and you're the one who is making us our best self. Please do the work we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.